Now, you're going to see that the sermon title today is The Lord Saves, Establishes, and Increases. Now, one of the things that we're going to look at in this passage is we, we, God has given us the opportunity today to see how some of the traditions and things that are practiced are on the basis of slightly flawed translations. And so what we, that's why it's so helpful to go back to the originals and see a sense of it. And what I'm going to do for you, because I don't ever want you to merely lean upon me, I'm going to go to other passages in the scripture that have similar grammar, so we can see how there the translators handled it, and there the translators handled it, but here they mishandled it, and that mishandling has led to a misunderstanding. The scriptures cry out in the book of Revelation, salvation belongs to our God. When Jesus is promised, he says, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I ask you this, does God save, does Jesus save, or do we save ourselves? We're going to look at that and unfold uh, these things because there is a little bit of confusion. But I want us to see this. The Lord saves. In Acts chapter 2 verse 29 it says this. And, and it's been doing an amazing thing here. Because remember. What it, when, when you had this pattern that began to be established with the coming of John the Baptist and then also the ministry of Christ and the apostles. They were coming to the children of Israel and they were saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was their message. They were saying, repent. And then the people were coming in repentance and being baptized, confessing their sins. And, and, and that's, a, that's an interesting notion because to the Jew, that would have two strong senses. Even those who might be, according to the law, purified, which often involved a cleansing or a dipping or a baptism of some sorts, they were being told, it doesn't matter what you are ceremonially right now with regard to the old covenant. The fact is this, you are unclean and need to be cleansed. Need to be cleansed from your sins, which is what baptism significantly signified, a repentance and a, and a cleansing from your sins. Further, it was part of the process when a non-Jew would become a proselyte, which means when he would convert to Judaism, when he would leave his false and pagan gods and, and come to worship the God who had revealed himself in the law of Moses, Throughout the Old Testament, when someone would convert and become, as the Old Testament called them, a sojourner among them, the foreigner who resides among you, there was a process of conversion which strongly emphasized the necessity of a baptism. That was a, that was a cleansing, that was a death, that was a putting aside permanently of the old way and a new identity with the children of Israel and with the God of Israel. And so when, when they're coming in on the day of Pentecost and telling all of these people who are there that you must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, he's declaring them all. The Pharisees, the priests, the devout men from every nation who would have already gone through various cleansing rituals to participate in the feast that is going on. 
So ceremonially, most of them would have said, I'm clean. I can draw near to God through these festivities. They're being told, you are unclean. You are off. You are estranged. And you need be cleansed. You need have a new life. You need to die to the former life and live to another one. He declares this to all of those who are Jews. So they had no hope in their ceremonial standing. They had no hope in their history or heritage standing. This promise is for you. Then he further says this promise is for your children. Not only you, but each of your children is going to have to recognize they don't stand in the new covenant by virtue of their parents. As you need to repent and be baptized, your children will need to be repent and baptized. And those who are far off, which is a reference oftentimes in the New Testament to the Gentiles. It puts all of mankind, regardless of their previous religious practices, regardless of their ceremonial participation, it puts all men very clearly in this condition. You are unclean. You are apart from God. You need to be cleansed. You need to be brought to him. And this is the promise, this promise that you would be brought near, that you would be cleansed, that you would receive the Holy Spirit is for you, for your children, and for those who are far off. It puts all of mankind in exactly the same camp, in exactly the same condition. Which, um, again, as we, as we work through a few things, I want us to understand this. It says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself so who is going to be saved who is the initiator in the salvation of man who instigates it and brings it about everyone of you your children and those who are far off everyone the lord our god calls to himself it speaks of his effective effectual powerful call as it says this in ephesians uh, chapter 4 verse 4 there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That's the difference. What Ephesians is again doing there is you can't have this notion that there, that there is Jews and Gentiles. Once you are in Christ by faith, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile. There is no longer slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian, male or female. Each one stands individually before God on the basis of faith. And as we stand individually in relationship with God on the basis of faith, we are united to one another as a community, as a family of faith, as a household of God. No longer having this hierarchy and status but we ourselves are all by grace as it tells us in peter we are all we all become a royal priesthood and a holy nation we have exactly the same status and position in the kingdom of god and that position is one that is granted us in christ not one that we have earned on our own but I want us to see this. The Lord saved. 2 Timothy 1.9 says this. Uh, of God who saved us. So again I might ask you this question. Who saved you? And your answer would be. God saved me. He saved. God saved us. 
and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before ages began. So it was given, designated for us in Christ Jesus before ages began and brought to us when he called us according to his purpose and grace out of darkness into his marvelous light, out of this world into his kingdom. I love the way that it's also stated in 1 Peter 3 and just going to uh, share a bunch of verses because it's so good to see what God's word says. One of the things we were looking at when we looked at this sermon is a faithful biblical sermon is scripturally saturated. It says this, 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. To a new and living hope through the resurrection that is in Christ Jesus. So if you're born again... Who caused it? God caused it. He has caused us to be born again. Now these are little snippets that somehow we adjust in our head. And I remember growing up and not actually listening closely to the words. It's almost as if I hear saved Christ. And, and okay, I'm saved because of Christ. But I'm saved because of Christ. Because of me. Because I listened, I heeded, I responded. There was this tendency to, to only hear almost every other word because I was somewhat culturally conditioned. But then when you read through the scripture, he saved us. He caused us to be born again to a new and living hope. As many as the Lord our God calls to himself. And I begin to sit back and re re realize this. God saves sinners. Sinners don't save themselves at all. Going on also to what it says. Um, uh, Jesus says, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. You must be born again. And what did it? What did first Peter one three tell us? He caused us to be born again. So when by his grace we are born again, who gets all the praise and thanks? God gets all the praise, thanks, and glory because who caused our new birth? Who brought it about? God, because he is the God who saves again. Uh, we remember the language of Ephesians chapter 2. When you were dead in your trespasses and sin, verse 1. Verse 4 and 5 says this, but God being rich in mercy. So where was I? Where were you? Where was every Jew? Every descendant of Jews and everyone else among mankind, where were we by nature? Dead in our trespasses and sin. But we always love that glorious transition, that, that contrasting statement at the beginning of verse 4. But God. Me? Dead. What am I going to be doing? Not much. Generally, again... Uh, when, when someone is dead, the, the way to bring them back it, it isn't to coach them. You got to start breathing, buddy. You just got to. It's not going to work. Why not? They can't respond. And so even in resuscitating situations, 
Somebody is breathing into them. Somebody is pressing on their chest. Somebody is getting the defibrillator ready and clear. They're, they're, they're not saying, look, I'm going to stand here until you do something. And once you do something, I'll get involved. No, if you do that to a dead man, what does he do? Nothing. And because they can do nothing, the medical profession gets involved because they can't do anything for themselves. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, it says this. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, there wasn't the stirrings of sweetness. While we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We went from death to life. How? By the power of God alone. He goes on and, 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 and unfolds this a little bit more. By great, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 8 goes on to say, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one else can boast. This is, this is the, the circumstance and the condition that we were in by nature. I love what it says also in James 1.18. It's one of those verses, again, it says this concerning God. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Whose sovereign will was powerfully active in bringing us to saving grace. It's God and God alone that we would be the first fruits. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says this. But we always give thanks to you brothers beloved by God. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we declare the gospel indiscriminately to everyone, don't we? Because there is no salvation apart from the gospel. Indeed, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And when God is pleased through our proclamation of the gospel. To set forth his special call and say... Come home. I love the way that it's stated in John chapter 10 as Jesus, the great shepherd, dealing with his own sheep. What does it say? I know my own sheep and they know me. I call them by name. And when he calls his own sheep, what do they do? They follow him and he gives unto them eternal life. And when he has brought out all of his own, so clearly, the scriptures repeatedly say, the Lord saves. No one will ever stand in the presence of God for all eternity and say, yeah, God saved all of you. But in my case, I saved myself. It's not going to happen because there is no salvation except the salvation that God delivers. There's no salvation in man. There's no hope any other way. So now... Then why does it seem to say in verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, and your translation says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
So does it not seem to say, save yourselves? Now, I, when I say your translation, that is unless someone happens to have the New American Standard Version. Because there it does not say, save yourself. It says, be saved from this crooked and perverse generation. Which is a little closer. So let me, let me, let me show you how this is messed up. Even one, one uh, uh, well-respected commentator that many men off refer to, uh, an old... Uh, commentator named Albert Barnes, on seeing what it says in English, he responded like this. It is implied that they were to use diligence and effort to deliver themselves. Now, why, what, how is that implied? From the English saying, save yourselves. But the Greek does not say save yourselves. So, so what, I'm, what he's saying is faulty. He goes on to say this. Uh, he calls upon them to put forth their own power and effort to be saved. Unless they put forth their own strength, they will never be saved. Wrong! They, they have no strength. They have no effort. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. They, they're wholly unable and unwilling to respond. So what is going on here? Why does the text and the scripture so repeatedly teach us the glorious truth? God saves sinners. There's none who saves but God. None can save themselves, but God must save Here's where the mistake lies. This particular phrase that's translated save yourself. Now, I know a lot of you aren't lovers of grammar. But sometimes it's important to start to love it a little bit because it, it helps us to understand. This word, it's one word that's translated save yourselves. It is a verb. So we understand what a verb is, a reference to an action. It is an imperative. It is something that is necessary or must happen. It is an aorist. Means it's something that happens once and then has ongoing consequences or significance. More, more importantly, it is passive. Passive. Save yourselves. Is that a passive sentence in English? Save yourselves is a very active phrase. So this is, this is why Albert Barnes makes a mistake. He reads it and he trusts the translators, which most of the time we can. I don't want you to begin to doubt your Bibles at all. Most of the time our translators have done a phenomenal job. But every once in a while there are key places where they jumped ship. Or what they tended to do is they followed previous translations. Here it's not the idea of save yourself. It is more this. Uh, being a passive, if I was to read to you, and I am, from a Greek grammar instructional, it would say that this is the effect of aorist passive imperatives. It is not meaning do this. It means have this done to you it is not meaning you must do this it means you must have this done to you that's a big difference isn't it the aorist imperative passive means you must be saved it's as simple as that instead of save yourself it is you must 
be saved. Just like when Jesus said, you must be born again. That was a necessity, correct? But who causes them to be born again? Ah, God caused them to be born again. You must be saved. Who saves you? God. Oh, the, why did they say save yourselves? Makes me want to pull my hair out. I want to show you a few more examples of this where, where the translators translating the same notion got it right. If you have a, a, a time, go with me to Matthew 21, 21. If not, I will read it for you anyways. Here, Jesus is dealing with the disciples and the necessity of faith, how their faith was too small. And he tells them this, truly I say to you, Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, Matthew 21, 21, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. This command that is to be issued to the mountain is what? Be taken up. It's the same thing. It is an aorist imperative passive. You know what it's not saying? Mountain, get up and run into the sea. Why? Because a mountain generally doesn't move. The command for that mountain to move isn't expecting the mountain to move on its own. But for God to move the mountain by his power. Another verse for you. So again, can mountains move? No. Be taken up and th be thrown into the sea. There's actually two there. The ESV that I'm reading from uh, only seems to show one, be taken up and be thrown into the sea. Two aorist passives, all of which the mountain does what? Just gets taken and thrown. It, it's not actively involved. It's being carried along by the power of God, who the faith is in. Remember, the faith isn't in the mountain's ability to move, isn't it? The faith is resting in God to remove that mountain. Mark chapter 1, give you just one more example of the grammar done rightly. Mark chapter 1, verse 40 to 42. Here a leper comes to Jesus. It says, a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling before him. If you will, you can make me clean. With pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said... I will be clean. That sentence there, be clean, is in the aorist passive imperative. Now, you know what he's not saying? I will clean yourself. If that guy could have cleaned himself from his leprosy, would he have not already done it? He's come to Christ desperate, powerless to do this very thing. He can't do it. That's why he says to Christ, if you will, then I will be cleaned. And Jesus says, I will be clean. Jesus is active in the cleansing. The man with leprosy is the passive recipient of it. Be cleaned. Be saved. 
Well, again, in the context, when he's calling on them to be saved, it's not something you can do. It's something that only God can do to you. These men cut to their heart, but then what shall we do? Well, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord. Repent, be baptized believing and calling out on him. He calls you to, to a response to the gospel that will evidence the grace that is at work within you. But salvation is not the result of man's works and deeds. Indeed, our repentance and our faith are grace gifts that God gives to us as he saves us. Let's look at a few more things then. Um, first of all, again, he's urging them to, to be saved so, so if you were to write in there, and I have actually written in the margin of my Bible, I've circled save yourself, and in the margin I've written, you must be saved. Passive. So that, I, so that I remember that. You must be saved from this crooked or this perverse, this twisted, morally depraved generation. And what he's ultimately doing is the same thing that we've looked at before. Where is all mankind? They're part of this crooked generation. They're part of this condition of the world. Um, again, in Matthew uh, 16, 4, Jesus says to those who are challenging him, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Some would say, oh, well, that's just the unbelieving of the world. Well, in Matthew 17, 17, a man had brought his child who was suffering from a demon to the disciples of Christ, and they were not able to cast him out. And Jesus says, even of those who were his earthly temporal disciples, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? So even those who would become his apostles, they weren't faithful and holy of themselves to begin with. All are born as part of this twisted, corrupt, perverse generation. The way that it's stated in Ephesians, going back to that, back to chapter 2, we had looked at a few verses in there. Now I'm going to look at verse 2 and 3. Uh, speaking of the trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were all... Sons and daughters of disobedience. That's the kingdom we lived in until we are sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience to Christ. Verse 3 actually says this. Among whom we all once lived. We were one among them. In the passions of our flesh, flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest. So the whole world is by nature... Children of wrath. The whole world is by nature sons of dis disobedience. The whole world is by nature uh, a twisted, perverse, crooked generation. That's why we say God saves sinners. Such were some of you. But God, who is rich in his mercy, saved you and I out of that bringing us to repentance and faith. It, it, remember, um, as we move on, and we see, so the Lord saves. 
the one sentence in here that seems to say otherwise, save yourselves, is a tragic mistranslation. Because even most of us who may not be thoroughly versed in grammar can understand that if something is passive, that means it's being done to us, not being done by us. And this, this what's translated save yourselves is in the passive. Being saved is what's being done to us. Ah, go to the, go to the end of this chapter. And we have it again in the passive. And it says this. Verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It doesn't say those who saved themselves. Why? Because again it's in the passive. So it breaks my heart that the translators gave this one in the passive. We're being saved. We're being saved how? By the Lord, adding to the church's number. Okay, so salvation is all of God as he saves us out of this perverse generation, out of our trespasses and sin, out of the disobedience of the heart, and changes who we are. Not only does the Lord save, but the Lord establishes. Let us look at that second idea here. The, one of the ways that the Lord establishes them in their salvation, and one of the ways in which, remember, we're told in Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? So God saves us, but then that salvation brings us into a new state. No longer sons of disobedience, now sons of obedience. As it says in Romans 6, those who have become obedient from the heart. We, are we were dead, we are now made alive. We were walking our own way, now we are following him. We were serving ourselves and the passions and desires of this world. And now we are saved to serve the true and living God. What a wonderful change, right? One of the first ways that God establishes us and evidences that saving change is in our baptism. Baptism for the children of Israel and, and in the days of the early church, it was done a bit differently than we do today. They were generally... What was the day of salvation for these individuals on the day of Pentecost who heard the gospel? When, what day were they saved? I'll give the answer for you. On the day of Pentecost. And on what day were they baptized? On the day of Pentecost. They were saved and baptized. When Philip went and he preached the gospel, those who heard, those who received the gospel... Repented again. So, so we, we see how this uh, begins to unfold. And I, and I want to show you a, a few pieces of this. Acts 2 verse 41 says this. So those who received his word were baptized. Right? Now, of course, yes, they're saved. But they, because they received his word by grace, in other words, their hearts were no longer hard, their ears were no longer deaf, their eyes were no longer uh, uh, blind. God has worked within them, taken out that heart of stone that would be unresponsive and putting in a, a soft heart, a heart of flesh, that now by grace responds to the gospel believingly. And they receive the word and are baptized. Now it's important to note this. There are a lot of traditions even within Christianity that uh, baptize those who have 
not yet received the word, those who have not yet responded in faith, those who have not yet repented, those who are not confessing their sin in faith, okay? Now, our goal, of course, is to be faithful to Scripture in every way. And though we may, we may share a lot in common, doctrinally in some areas, with these brothers and sisters in Christ, the fact is this, we can't simply look to men. We can't look back and say, Martin Luther, the great leader of the Reformation, held to, held to all of this, so we've got to follow everything he did. We don't. John Calvin had so much influence and he held to this, so we've got... No, we don't. We hold on to the scriptures. I'm going to jump ahead and jump back for just a split second, so bear with me. In verse 42, it says this. And they devoted themselves or continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine. You know what we commit ourselves to? The apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine. Not other great men of God in the past. We may give ear to them, but if what they're saying is different, because if to some degree they're bound up in the uh, society and traditions and patterns of their day, we don't want to follow men. They, in this early church, committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. We do that same thing following the Reformation principle that was sola scriptura, which simply means scripture alone. That's what establishes the foundation. And we continue to do that by saying, okay, this man said this, but the New Testament is given to us by the authority and attestation of the apostles who were specially endowed for that role by Christ himself. Let us see what they have to say. And when we look at the New Testament, it is very clear that baptism is given to those who receive the word. Now, the way it's traditionally stated is, well, yes, if somebody is an adult and they're an unbeliever and then they receive the word as an adult, then they need to be baptized upon faith and repentance. But in the Old Testament... Circumcision was given to them and to their children and to their children's children. And so since a believer believes he's baptized, maybe according to his faith, but then his children will be baptized because of the faith of the parents and, and so on and so forth. They're connecting ideas from the old covenant to the new covenant. We have to be careful with that because one of the beautiful things in the providence of God with regard to his introductory prelude to the old covenant in Jeremiah 31, he began it this way. I will make a new covenant with them. It is not like the covenant I made with their forefathers. So do we begin by drawing similarities between them? If God himself in the introduction of the promise of a new covenant said, it's not like the old one. We don't start out by saying, oh, I bet it's just like it. No, we don't start in, we don't make derivative connections between the two. We say, if there are similarities, it will, we'll see it stated of the new and stated in the old and we'll see the similarities. Because there are similarities. They were all given, both given by God. All right, so it's not that they're totally and they're between God and men. 
not all men, a particular segment of mankind. Old covenant with Israel, new covenant with those in Christ. So there are some similarities, but we can't make connections. I want, I want us to see how this unfolds with regard to baptism. Those who received his word were baptized. Up there further in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 38, it says this. Peter said to them, when they were cut to the heart, when they were convicted, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Again, I want to note this. What precedes baptism in verse 38? Repentance, repent. What clearly also preceded it in verse 41? They received the word and were baptized. Now, how many babies repent? How many babies receive the word? I mean, do they understand anything? And remember, he has already carefully in this passage put the need for repentance, the need for faith, the need for baptism in the same position for those who are there now listening who are adults, those who are their children and descendants, and those who are far off. And it says, every one of you, making it an individual thing, not a family thing. I mean, as heartbreaking as it is, Jesus says of his ministry, do not think I came to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And what under the old covenant was very household based, in the new covenant he says this, your enemies will be the members of your own household. So there's no promise. Again, back to the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, leading up to the the, uh, introduction of the new covenant, it says, in those days, after those days, again, the same reference as when the new covenant comes, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Where there was a direct connection and even punishment for the sins of the children of Israel would often fall on them and their children, and their children's children, continuing as through the book of Judges, to be oppressed by the Ammonites and the Amalekites because of their disobedience. But with regard to salvation and the new covenant, no, no, no. The children eat sour grapes, and the the parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. You will no longer say that proverb. There is not a connection between parent and children with regard to the new covenant. The new covenant is in the blood of Christ. It is entirely by grace. And that's why, again, we looked at a number of places in the past in the New Testament. When dealing with that, Paul will say things like this of Timothy and Titus. To to Timothy, my true child in faith. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. True child? You have no blood relation to these people. But there is a sense in which he understood in the context of the new covenant. He has a more glorious blood relation to these people than if they shared his blood. Because they both by grace share in the blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sins. So back into it. Repent and be baptized every one of you. Remember, Romans 3, 9 said this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? 
No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Romans 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It, 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 it is laid it out under the New Testament. Everyone under sin. Everyone dead. Everyone disobedient. Everyone in need. And every individual must be saved. Unless they're saved, there is no hope. And again, that connection. We had seen in verse 41, it said those who received were baptized. As the ministry of new covenant baptism was beginning with John the Baptist, he says it this way in Matthew 3 verse 6. As he preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It says they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So, some of my dear brothers in Christ will say, well, how do you know that there weren't any, uh, they weren't bringing their kids because the father was being baptized? How do you know that they weren't bringing their kids and that their little babies weren't also being baptized with them? How do you know that? It doesn't say they weren't. Well, it doesn't mention them as being there or not there, but what it does mention very clearly is that everyone who was being baptized was confessing their sin. Which means they had at least enough understanding to hear the gospel. That men are rightly condemned in their trespasses and sin. And that the only hope for forgiveness is by faith in Christ. And the forgiveness that is ours because of his shed blood on the cross of Calvary. They have to be able to understand that so that they then come forward confessing their sin. So even from the beginning, and we know that Jesus and his disciples were carrying on the exact same baptism ministry as was being done by John. And so we have this connection further. I'll just connect, jump you if you would briefly to Acts 19. Now here's a sad thing that happened. In the process of uh, uh, John's ministry, as he's preaching a baptism of repentance, we know this from the way the Gospels lay it out, that uh, the baptism that he was speaking of, he would declare this in his Gospel message, he would declare this, I baptize with water, but there is one who is coming after me who will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. He is one whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. And then as Jesus passes by, what, is, what does John say? Here is the one I'm speaking of. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was always telling them that their repentance was a repentance and a resting in faith on the one who was to come and provide the forgiveness of sin. Remember, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So who takes away the sin? The Lamb of God, Jesus. Does the baptism take away the sin? Does the water take away the sin? No, it doesn't. The water and the act was to symbolize their faith in the one who would secure 
the forgiveness of sin for them. By the, but what began to happen is, as you got further out from where John was, people were continuing to carry out maybe some of John's own disciples. They were going out and calling people to repentance. There are many seasons of national repentance throughout the Old Testament. Which is sad because it means they had a gone, again, gone so far away that they needed national repentance. And somehow, as the message went out from where John was, people were conducting baptisms in John's name, John's baptism, that wasn't pointing to the one who was to come, but was simply a recognition of sin and unworthiness. Just a traditional national one. So go with me to Acts 19. And we come across some men who had been baptized, recognizing they needed forgiveness, they needed cleansing, but never having been told it is in Christ. It says this in Acts 19, verse 4 and 5. And Paul said, he, they said, they hadn't received the Holy Spirit, and so he's confused. Then into what were you baptized? Because under the terms of the new covenant, when you're baptized believing you will receive the Holy Spirit. So how is it you've not received the Holy Spirit? They said, we've not even heard of him. Then to what were you baptized? John's baptism. Are you sure it was really John's baptism? Let me tell you all that John said in his baptism. And so Paul opens up the full teaching of John's baptism, which they hadn't even heard his message. Look what it says. John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling People, what? To believe. So what was an essential part of the baptism even of John? Believing. We see now believing and we already saw confessing of sin. Okay, To believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Upon hearing this. Which means they never heard that. They had been baptized, but they had not been baptized in response to the promise of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. So upon hearing this, what happened? Well, upon hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Some would say, oh, so are you saying they were re-baptized? Well... They, what they did before was not done correctly. I mean, we don't need to be baptized again and again and again. And we don't have to think that every time we sin that we've got to, oh no, I better go get baptized again. That's not how it works. But if the baptism is before a hearing of Christ... If it's before a resting of faith in Christ... If it's before a confession of sin and a trusting in Christ then you haven't actually received new covenant baptism. So it's not technically a re-baptism. It's a baptism. It's believer's baptism. It's a biblical baptism. We don't re-biblically baptize people. We simply take those who have gone through some rite or ceremony, which often might have involved a little bit of sprinkle, sprinkle, a little bit of pouring, and different methods are ultimately used. And, and we say... Have you been baptized? 
And it is, it is, again, that individual acknowledgement. My salvation isn't on the basis of the church. It's not on the basis of, of my parents who went before me. It's on, it's on the basis of, by grace, I believe in Jesus Christ and confess my sin and trust in Him alone. Amen? Yes. So that's why we urge this truth, this doctrine of believers' baptism. Again, in Acts chapter 8, as Philip preached the gospel, it says, and they were baptized both men and women. Now, it's interesting that it says both men and women and doesn't men mention any of their little ones, per se, when they're already jumping from men to women. Why not keep going to the rest of the crew who was there unless they're not until they respond? So, at what age is someone able to understand the gospel and respond in repentance and faith? My answer, God knows. I don't know. I, mean, I know some churches that they fix a certain age and they say until this age, we're not going to baptize. That's, that's a little tough. Uh, but I know others who, who, who will, as soon as a little one is willing, they will baptize them. The question is, you got to engage them. Have you, by the gospel, been brought to godly grief? A sense of the, uh, uh, of the wickedness of your sin. I mean, I love the way that it's stated, um, that the scripture states it in uh, 2 Timothy 2.25, uh, as we are people who correct opponents with gentleness, um, Oh no, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Any kid can memorize, the, can memorize um, traditional catechisms, traditional answers to question, are you a sinner? Yes. Do you need to be saved? Yes. Do you repent of your sin? Yes. I mean, anyone can, can understand those point by point and tick the box, but the scriptures want us to understand the, it's more than just affirming. The Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Have you, by the power of the Spirit, brought, been brought under the conviction of sin? Not only the general acknowledgement we're all sinners, but do you recognize your deserving judgment? And that you need the mercy of God. Godly grief brings to repentance. So, I don't, so we don't want to rush children to the water. Because it's not water that saves. It's God that saves. Now there is one confusing verse in that respect. And so we'll go there. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to have to zip through the rest of this. 1 Peter chapter 3 says this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, like Noah going through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So does baptism save you? Well, it momentarily sounded like that. Now, the reason why it would momentarily sound like that is because generally a person was to receive baptism. It stood as a, as a badge that they what? Repented and believed. And so it stood as a badge that by grace they had been brought to salvation, granted faith and repentance. And so it stood as that badge. But listen, it says again here, uh, baptism, 
which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So not just the blatant act of baptism. Just simply dipping someone in water does not save them. First, this is uh, 1 Peter 3.21. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. So whoever's being baptized is believing what? In the death and resurrection of Christ, the significance of his atoning sacrifice and his resurrection power. There also, it says, an appeal to God. Now, uh, um, the King James there says, the answer of a good conscience. This is not, the, the, the sentence here is, the word is not an answer. It is an appeal, or as many other translations put, a pledge to God. For a good conscience through Christ. It is where we are saying to God. God forgive my sins. I identify. I trust. I rest in Christ. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the person being baptized. Is ultimately by faith. Declaring something to God. That they're trusting him for the forgiveness that is in Christ. Who is resurrected. Does that happen for the little baby? That's what breaks my heart. Uh, uh, many of these denominations that, that have been baptizing babies. One. They're denying these children the opportunity. To obey. This is like one of the first acts of obedience of faith. To bring about the obedience of faith of the nations. One of the gospel commands is repent and be baptized. It's one of the first privileges of obedience that we get. And secondly, it stands as a reminder. I pledged myself to him. I said I died, in, I died to who I was. My life is now hid with God in Christ. I no longer live for myself, but I live for the one who has saved me and set me free. It's a complete reorientation, a complete re-identity. It, it is a, a pledge. It is an appeal. And that does not happen. These, these little ones, they can't remember their baptism. I guess we live in an era now in which somebody could record it and show them the video. But I think few times will you find them confessing their sin. Calling out to God in faith. Resting in the resurrection. They, they, they don't. Because they can't. And it's a sad thing that they've missed out on that. All right. Jumping on through. And one more. One more verse. Colossians 2.12. I mean. I'm knocking this deep. So I may as well finish. All right. We're, we, since my time is expired. My commitment to finish chapter 2 today. Did not happen. But that's okay, we got a lot of things, how they commit themselves to the um, apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. I just don't want to do injustice to those sections. Colossians 2.12 says this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. What is the expectation? Who's being baptized? It symbolizes we've died with him and we've, as we emerge from the water, it symbolizes us being raised with him through faith. So if baptism takes place that doesn't have faith, is it baptism? It's not biblical baptism. 
having been raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. It's the same thing. Buried with him, raised, faith in the power of God, even as God raised Christ from the dead when I was dead in my transgressions and sin, he raised me up to walk in newness of life. Amen? So, two simple points we ended up seeing today. The Lord saves and the Lord establishes. Let's pray.